0: What began as a six-month assignment to help his father's organization has turned into a multi-decade journey of helping to bring relief and healing to our world's most vulnerable and needy citizens. During this episode, I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Douglas Jackson, President and CEO of Project Cure, the world's largest distributor of donated medical equipment and supplies to resource-limited communities across the globe. While together, Dr. Jackson shares why Project Cure began how he and his team successfully built a network of over 135 countries to deliver medical relief, and why he remains so passionate and dedicated to the mission of the organization. Additionally, Dr. Jackson discusses the other services Project Cure has launched over the years, where the organization is heading, and how you and your community can get involved. Join us for a heartwarming conversation about the art of the possible as we continue to work together to move the health of our world forward. Let's go. Douglas, a big, big welcome to our podcast, my friend.
1: Thank you, Mike. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me.
0: It is such a treat to have you on today, and I cannot wait for our community to get to know you and the incredibly inspiring and important work you lead with Project Cure. But before we dive in, and I have the honor to have this conversation with you, somebody I highly admire, a bit of housekeeping. While listening to any of our episodes, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. You will automatically receive episode updates in your podcast player. Simply search Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And lastly, please visit the bottom of the episode notes to connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Clubhouse in order to further the conversations occurring on this podcast. All right, Douglas, it is almost time for our community to learn how and why Project Cure has delivered over 200 semi-truckloads of donated medical supplies, unbelievable, and equipment to desperately needy people around the world every single year. But first, I'm going to randomly select a question so we can get to know you. All right, we are talking hobby. What is one thing that you love to do outside of the work that you've been leading for quite some time with Project Cure? What's that one hobby? What's that one thing you love to do?
1: You know what? There's been... Actually, a couple of things that I've started doing a lot more during COVID. And one of those is riding my bike, just being out. And of course, Denver has done such a great job of putting bike trails everywhere. And that's been a blast. And then the other thing, you know, you're talking to a guy who never used to watch much TV, but I really enjoyed watching the Food Channel, Food Network, and Chopped and Beat Bobby Flay, and then trying to take those skills and put those into my kitchen. And so we've been doing some really fun culinary work over COVID that I never used to be able to do.
0: Okay. Let's go there then. You're talking food. I'm a foodie. I love it. (laughs) Is it barbecue? Is it in the kitchen? Is it baking? What are some of the new tricks you have in the kitchen?
1: So it is in the kitchen. And I'll tell you one of the benefits, the highlights of COVID. My mom and dad are still doing great. My dad just turned 80. They live in Evergreen. And so when COVID started, I didn't want him going out of the house. And so we said, hey, we'll come up and bring you dinner on Wednesday, Thursday, maybe Saturday or Sunday. So twice a week, we'll come up and bring you dinner. My dad does not eat red meat. He doesn't eat shellfish. And so uh, I said, hey, anything we can do with fish or poultry, right? And I will not make you the same dinner twice. And so far, now 100 dinners later... <laughs> we've done Hungarian food. We've done all manner of Asian food. We've done some other really crazy stuff, Italian food. We've done Mexican food. We've done it out on the grill. We've done it in the oven. It's just been really, really fun to take some of these great cookbooks and fun ideas and then improvise. I love doing that.
0: Oh, how fun. And you know, that's part of this pandemic, Douglas, right? I mean, of course it has been Such a challenging time for all of us around the world in so many different ways, right? And I know your story. We're going to dive more into it here in just a moment. You, before the pandemic, were on the road nonstop, over 200 plus thousand miles a year, traveling the world, bringing care to desperate communities around the globe. But here you are now, locked down in Colorado, and being able to have that time with your father, it must be incredibly rewarding.
1: Yeah, it's been fun. I mean, I don't think I've spent as much time with my parents since high school, honestly. And it's just been neat. My mom, you talked about baking. My mom is the baker. Cooking, I think, is an art. Baking is a science. (laughs) And I've never really understood exactly why you use baking powder versus baking soda and the chemistry of what happens. But I'll tell you what, I've enjoyed her making some incredible bread and cakes and stuff like that, which is not good for the... COVID 10 or whatever it is, pounds, (laughs) but it's been a neat opportunity. So that's
0: fun. Well, I'm not good at art or science, but I am good at barbecue. So I don't know where barbecue falls into that.
1: (laughs) Oh man, that's art. That's art. (laughs)
0: Oh, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Well, Douglas, thank you for sharing that. And I agree with you. It is nice to be able to slow down a bit. Like you said, dive in, try new hands in the kitchen and be able to share that with family. So thank you for sharing that gives me some inspiration to think creatively and bring some new dishes to life as well. So again, thanks for sharing that, Douglas. And I'm looking forward to discussing all the work that you and the team have been leading at Project Cure for quite some time now, after we get back from thanking our community champion sponsor. With rising burnout, malpractice, digital and personal risks, clinicians face greater than a million dollar liability. And in today's climate, busy frontline healthcare workers don't have the capacity to attend to these risky blind spots. But the AdaptTrack team is bringing hope and solutions to the healthcare industry. AdaptTrack's mission is to help clinicians and their practice teams work and live better. AdaptTrack's 30 second nudges unlock category one, continuing medical education credits, along with insurance savings while meeting the busy clinician where they are. On Clubhouse, during weekend nature walks, through all of helps, from this podcast and over 3000 additional work life moments to learn more about adapttrack and how you can engage in active learning that drives a 5x plus ROI, a 30x time savings, and an experienced clinicians will love. Head over to adapttrack.com or visit the top of the episode notes and click on their link. We are back with Douglas Jackson, President and CEO of Project Cure Douglas We have had an opportunity to spend some time on the stage together with friends around this community here in Denver. Some of the things we work on collectively. I've been a big fan of yours for many years. You've been one of those leaders in the community when I first moved here. You really helped an opportunity for me to grow in this community. I've always looked up to you. You are the absolute embodiment of bringing your authentic and real self to whatever you put your mind to. And I can't wait for our community to hear more about Project Cure. And and you've been at it now for over 24 years. It's an amazing organization. We have a lot to discuss. We're going to talk about what you guys are doing today. And of course, where you see this work heading into the future. If I know Douglas Jackson, I know he is not quite done yet. You're just getting going, my friend. There's a lot more in store with what you have been doing with the organization. But before we go there and we talk current and future state and how we can help you and the movement let's go back a bit. How did this all come together in the first place? Like I said, 20 plus years at it. How did this come to be in the first place?
1: Well, thank, let me just take an aside and tell you, thanks. Your words mean a lot. And you've done some incredible things in this community and what you've done with Catalyst, what you're doing with Olive, the things that you do on this podcast. You're a rockstar, man. And I just appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you. Thank you. This whole thing got started by my mom and dad in their garage in 1987. If you rewound way back, my folks moved to Denver when I was two. And my dad got into real estate back in the 60s and 70s and was very instrumental in developing a couple of areas west of Denver that you might have heard of. One's called Winter Park and the other one's called Vail. <laughs> and his goal was to be rich. And rich was defined as a millionaire. And he wanted to be a millionaire before he was 30, I think, or whatever it was. And getting into real estate at that period of time, that worked. And he made way more money than he ever thought he was going to. But one of those lessons that we don't teach very often is is that you can be rich and not happy. And it doesn't mean you're going to be unhappy. It just, there's no correlation between how much money is in your bank and how happy you are. And so my dad looked at my mom one day and he says, are you happy? And she said, the happiest I ever was, was when we were kids living in Idaho, saving up quarters to go to Wheeler's hamburgers for date night on Friday. And they thought about that for a bit. And then he said, you know what? I think you're right. They started a foundation. They gave their money away to churches and schools and colleges and things here in the United States. And then my dad started doing economic consulting and his first Pro bono, unpaid economic consulting gig was in Zimbabwe when it had just turned from being Rhodesia to being Zimbabwe, and he started working with President Mugabe back before he was a bad guy. He used to be a good guy, (laughs) and it actually it went really well. And he was teaching those people how to barter, so they were bartering corn and maize and things like that for steel and coal and copper, and it went really, really well. And so he got invited to go to Brazil. And that's where this whole Project Cure thing got started. My dad's interpreter, when he was working with the president of Brazil, was a little medical student. Her name was Lorena Vello, And Lorena's mama was a doctor. And they used to go into the favelas on the weekends, and they would work with the doctors and the poor people. And she invited my dad to go with her on a weekend, and he went. And they were doing primary care clinic in this sort of beat up old house. And there's a long line of people waiting to get in. And my dad walked in there and all there was was an old exam table and a box of re-rolled bandages. And the bedroom, the guy had turned into the pediatrics ward, and it had a baby scale and some Walt Disney posters. And that's it. And it just tore my dad's heart out. And he came back to Denver and he had a buddy of his, a guy named Greg Lowe. And Greg and his partner, Pete, had a medical wholesale company. And they were down there off of Santa Fe and Oxford. And my dad went down there and Greg walked him through the warehouse. He said, well, here's some stuff I could give you. This isn't selling very fast or this is a return item or whatever. And they filled up my dad's old brown Dodge pickup truck and he drove it out and stuck it in his garage. And then Greg started calling all of his buddies in the business, U.S. Medical and everybody else. And they started giving my dad stuff. And in about 30 days, they had filled both sides of my parents' garage full of medical supplies. Well, they put that in a 40-foot shipping container, and they shipped that down to Brazil. And that's how this whole thing started. One of Lorena's professors called and said, would you do something similar at my medical university? And my dad agreed. And then another professor said, she said, you know, there's no place in Brazil to take care of little kids with cancer. And I'm thinking of starting the Boldrini Cancer Institute, but I don't have any money to buy stuff. And so my dad helped stand that up. and then." Union came apart and then Hurricane Mitch hit Honduras and I'm off practice in law. I went back and did a PhD in finance. I thought I was going to go run hedge funds and my dad, he'd say, hey, I could use some help. And so I told my pop I'd help him for six months and that was 1997.
0: Wow. (laughs) So a little bit longer than six months, huh, Douglas? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I call
1: that that's when your detour becomes your destiny, right?
0: I love that. So, you hit that six months, you're like, I'm going to give this six months with dad, I'm going to help him out. But did you know pretty quickly, like, all right, I think this might be my calling as well? At least for the beginning, it was always kind of a matter of there was always
1: another challenge, right? We used to use the big airplane hangar out at the old Stapleton Airport. Mayor Webb and Stephanie Foote had let us use that airplane hangar. And so we were going like crazy shipping out of that. Well, then they decided to bulldoze it. So then I had to go get another warehouse and It just seemed like, and you're a startup guy, you understand this. It just seems like every day you just get up and you drink a cup of adrenaline (laughs) because the problems are out there and you just go at it. And you don't really think about, is this what I really want to do? And then I started going overseas and seeing what we were trying to fix. And that's when it gets, I mean, into your skin. And you're watching these people who... Just by the unluck of being born where they got born, that's their life, that's their health care, that's their death, frankly, in a lot of cases. And you watch them come in and try to deliver babies or keep their little kiddos alive or they fall off their motorcycle and they serious trauma. And they're making a buck and a half a day working a 12 hour shift and they die. And it was like, you know what, I can fix that. I mean, let's see what we can do to make a big dent. Wasn't it Steve Jobs who said, his vision was to put a dent in the universe. Yep.
0: Well, you're doing that, my friend. And I can't wait to dive in a little bit more on some of the specifics and where you're at and how we can be helping. But let me ask you, Douglas, if you take it back. And even today, you mentioned that your father and you, you started rallying some of these device and supply companies and you filled up some spaces pretty quickly with the goods and then shipped them off. How big of an opportunity is out there with these manufacturers? Give us a little bit of an understanding on the supply side of these products. What's happening out there? Do they need somebody like a project here? And we'll talk about how we can get a hold of you and see if there might be some leaders within the community that might want to get involved. But help us better understand the supply side of it all.
1: So supplies come really from three main sources, if you will. And we do a lot of work with some really great, generous manufacturers, people like Hillbrom and Stryker and Medline and Owens and Miner. And you think about who they are, kind of the bigs, right? And uh here in town has just been. Exceedingly generous with, with Project Cure, just a whole bunch of them. So the way that they help us is, let's say, for example, you're talking about a product, maybe blood drawing supplies, and they're going to issue 2.0, 3.0, whatever the next new thing is. You always have the old stuff sitting around that you didn't get sold. And when you're talking about national manufacturers, that could be a big lot of stuff. We're doing a project right now with Stryker Medical. They produced 22,500 COVID beds. And thankfully, we didn't need them in the United States. So they're sitting in a warehouse. The warehouses are expensive. It's a lot better to give them to Project Cure and move those things than to keep paying warehouse rent on them. And so we serve a bit of a stopgap for that, in addition to the corporate social responsibility piece of it. We end up with things from what we call end users, right? And these are your hospitals, clinics, places like that, ambulatory, surgical centers. And it usually is an overstock thing. We could talk a little bit about expiration dating because that's going to be a more and more difficult thing for us at Project Cure and for the rest of the world, frankly. But we'll go to all the hospitals and I ask people, what do you think the hospital does with anything from, let's say, an x-ray machine, right? Take it to the flea market because there's not a booth space at the flea market for x ray machines in Colorado. I mean, you know this. We're crazy people. We ski, we bike, we do all this stuff. We hurt ourselves. And I bet my friends, if you go to any garage sale in Denver, in the corner of the garage somewhere, I'll bet you there's a pair of crutches because that's just what we do here. (laughs) And what are you going to do with those? And the third group are private people who make donations like the guys with the crutches, or let's say grandma hospices, and when she finally passes, she's got all of this stuff sitting around, great bed, nice wheelchair. You can't send it back to hospice because Medicare, Medicaid, whoever, they've already paid for that stuff. It belongs to the family, but the family doesn't need it. So we can take all of that product and all of the things that we have that is kind of like, wow, we've been so blessed. And interestingly, Every industry has this, right? I think that the medical industry gets picked on a lot, and partly because it's expensive. But if you think about what happens to remember when we used to have big wide TVs that were about as deep as they were wide? Oh, yeah. And we all went to flat screen TVs. Well, what happened to the big wide ones? What happened to the computers? What happened to fill in the blank? You go to the mall in a store like The Gap or Abercrombie, what happens to all of those clothes that they don't sell? It's a problem. And so we can work with all of the generous people who are willing to donate everything from hospital beds to x-ray machines to gloves, gauze, and bandages, and we can use them to save lives.
0: And then thinking on the other side of that aisle, right? It's almost like two-sided marketplace, if you will, right? Since 87, you guys built a footprint around the world in more than 135 countries. I'm i to say that again, 135 countries. You know, as well as I do, Douglas, because you've been in the trenches, that didn't happen overnight. What was it like building that global network, 135 countries? What was that like?
1: Well, one of the interesting things, we decided that we would, first of all, never go any place until we were invited. And that makes us a little bit different in the sandbox where Project Cure plays, because a lot of organizations, and it's not bad or good, it just is different. They'll go where maybe there's a natural disaster or where there's funding from USAID or whatever. And that's fine. We just decided not to do that. So we wait for an invitation. And then the next thing that we do is before we ship anything, we actually go over there in person. We meet the doctors and nurses. We walk around the hospital. We do about an 18-page needs assessment study. And it starts with all of the general demographic information, like how many people live here, what's your catchment area, how many people come in ambulatory of your total patient population, then how many are actually hospitalized, how many doctors, how many surgeons, what kind of surgical procedures do you practice, how many babies were born here, what's your cesarean rate. And then we go room to room in that hospital and start with the emergency room. And we've got a list of everything you need in an emergency room. Do you have one of these? Do you have one of these? Do you need one of these? And then we do the same thing with all the supplies. When we're done with the ER, we go to the dental. Maybe these hospitals have a dental clinic. And then we'll go to OBGYN. And then we go to patient care. And then we go to all of these things. So by the time we're done, we really have a very, very good sense of exactly what it is that hospital needs. And then we take out the camera. And we walk room to room to room in all of those facilities, the hospitals, all over, clinics, doesn't matter what it is. And we take pictures of everything. And that is our baseline. I like to tell my team the food never gets better after it leaves the kitchen. So for us to do our best work means you have to go and you have to check it out. And what we're looking for is the three C's. The first C is character. Do I really know these people? I mean, do I trust them? We're going to come at them with a half a million dollars worth of stuff in a 40-foot container. And these people may be making a buck to five bucks a day, not an hour, a day. Well, you better know who you're dealing with if you want to make sure that that effort, that those resources actually get to the people who they're intended to be. The second thing is capacity. If we send an ultrasound machine, is there actually somebody on the ground who can use that ultrasound? Do they have a radiologist? Can they fix it? Can you get the parts? Do they have electricity? What kind of procedures are they doing here? Endoscopy towers? Sure, that'd be great. Somebody better be able to use it. So that's the capacity part. And then the third one is customs. And we have to be able to get the stuff through customs and make sure that it's actually going to get to the people who need it. So That makes us really different. So when you're talking about 135 countries building that base, that's also a lot of shoe leather and air miles to actually go to all of these places all over the world, meet the people, learn about their healthcare system, find out what's making them sick, find
0: out why they're dying and then try to fix it. Wow, that's amazing. And a unique way to go about it, Douglas. It's so inspiring. That does not sound easy work that just happens overnight. So bravo to you and the team. Invest on the front end, because you're right. You're bringing containers with six, seven figures worth of goods. We better make sure we know where it's going to put good use to it. But also, too, I want to highlight really quick, Douglas, there are some other programs within Project Cure. You have Cure Clinics, Cure Kits, and some other programs. What else have you guys developed under the Project Cure umbrella?
1: Well, it was fun because we decided that we were only going to ship in 40-foot cargo containers. So most people see these things running down the road. You It's a semi-truck trailer. It's corrugated on the side that, so you can stack it. So we just said, well, we're not going to do a pallet here and a pallet there. We're just going to do semi-truck tours. Well, <laughs> we had doctor friends that would come over and they say, you know what? We're going to Guatemala on a medical mission trip, and we can't take a 40-foot container. We're flying, right? <laughs> and so we built these cure kits is what they're calling. It's about 50 pounds, so you can check it on its luggage. And it's got about $2,500 for the stuff in it. It's a really, really, really amped up first aid kit. And it's got all of the stuff that you need, the blood pressure cuffs and the gloves and the gauze and the ambo bags, all of that stuff. And it comes in those kits. And that's really what that is designed for, is for people to take with them. Then we would get back and we'd be on a trip somewhere. we come back to a hospital or we're doing a pickup maybe or doing a talk to a group of people. and. Nurses and doctors would come up and say, wow, that is so cool. Could I ever go with you? Then we get on the other side and we're delivering the stuff and the doctors and nurses on the receiving end say, gosh, this is incredible. Thank you. But do you ever have anybody who could come and work with us? So I'm not a really smart kid, but if those people want to go and these people need them to come, then I'll bet we can put a program together (laughs) to get doctors and nurses from here to go over there and sit shoulder to shoulder in with the doctors and nurses over there. And we only go to places where we've shipped containers already, which makes it really cool because if you're a medical professional from the United States, so you get Honduras and you're going to do a medical mission. You get down there and then you discover at that time, well, there's no exam tables or the surgical theater doesn't have lights or, hey, doc, I thought you were supposed to bring the gloves. <laughs> Where's our gloves, right? And so it's really a pain in the neck to schlep everything that you're going to use to these places. So we put all of that infrastructure in first. We know the people, we know the doctors and nurses, and we can really facilitate a good, safe, meaningful, high impact trip for medical professionals here. About seven to 10 days. And so that's kind of what we've been doing for a while. What we started doing recently was what we call the Cure College. And I just lumped all of our training programs under the moniker. Somebody told me one time that we remember things when they're alliterated. So in our world, we have Cure Cargo, Cure Kids, Cure College, Cure Clinics. My kids are Caitlin, Kendall, Caroline. I'm not kidding. (laughs) That's awesome. It's become a disease now with me in my head. But anyway, so we go in and we start doing helping babies breathe teaching. In Helping Mothers Survive, we actually wrote a diarrhea management course that sort of picks up from where wash leaves off and it ends at clinical intervention. And how do you save particularly little kiddos who are getting dehydrated and not going to make it? But we can take some of those training programs and go into places. You know, We've done a lot of work with Newmont Mining here in Denver, in Ghana and Suriname. We're looking at doing some work with them in Ethiopia now. But we'll go into places where they may be losing 25% of these little babies. And you can do a training around helping babies breathe and teach those nurses and those midwives what they call the golden minute. And that little baby comes out. If that baby's got stage one or stage two apnea, that just means that they're not breathing. It happens everywhere. But if you're over there, these nurses think that the baby's not breathing and with either the primary or secondary stage apnea. And they just assume that that baby is stillborn. So they put the baby on the shelf. Well, a baby has 60 seconds and you have to get that little kiddo's core temperature up, which means swaddling get them under some heat. You have to get him breathing. You want them to cry. Screaming babies are happy babies. So you want those little kiddos start crying, but you only got 60 seconds to do that. So we teach them, look, mom is going to be okay for a minute. You can leave her literally for one minute. Go over here and get this little kiddo taken care of. Get the airway clean, get him crying, get them warm. And then you can set them down, sometimes under a a bare light bulb. I mean, it's just crazy. They don't have fancy incubators. Sometimes they don't even have oxygen. They don't have little ammo bags. So we teach them how to do CPR on these little newborns. And then let's go over to the mom and let's take care of the hemorrhage and all of the problems that we have. And we can save the mommy and the baby. We can drive those maternity infant mortality rates down significantly. We did a project in Uganda and Zambia. We cut the maternal mortality rate in half in five years.
0: Wow, so cool. That is exciting. And these are some of the things that you're still bringing to these communities around the world. You've been leading the charge now for over 20 plus years, still innovating, still finding unique and creative ways to bring care, bring relief, bring health to communities all over the globe. So with that, Douglas, what's next? What else is on the horizon? Give us a little bit of a future state. What are you seeing coming up for Project Cure around the globe in regards to global health What are you seeing as one of the key leaders and key figures in leading these initiatives? What are you seeing on the horizon that we should be learning about?
1: Well, I think, you know, coming out of COVID, we took about a year rest and we turned our entire organization around for the last year and put PPE and ventilators and everything back into U.S. hospital. That's the first time we've ever worked in the United States. But we were out of gloves and gowns and masks here. And so we decided we need to take care of our frontline workers here at home. And that's what we've been doing. But as we're pivoting back now into the international, the statistics that I'm seeing, the the projections that I'm seeing, it looks like we're probably going to be living with COVID in places like Africa, Latin America, Asia, until 2024 or 2025. Wow. Now, I'm halfway to my first and second Pfizer here, but these people aren't even thinking about testing yet, because that's just what happens when you live at that edge of poverty. So. We're going to be at it for a while around COVID, I'm afraid, in some of these communities. And then you have the other pandemics we have to address, like Ebola. That ain't gone. We had two outbreaks of Ebola last year in the middle of the pandemic. So Project Cure is going to continue to address those issues like we have and really take care of. The wealth disparity because of COVID has been incredibly exacerbated. The poor in the world got a lot poorer. And of course, there's a few, <laughs> Mr. Bezos and Mr. Zuckerberg, they made a lot of money. And it's going to be really hard for the poor to catch up again. And that just means lousy health care. So we're going to really do that. On a little bit narrower focus, when I started doing this, it was all about HIV, AIDS. And then, of course, malaria and tuberculosis, because people, they weren't dying of AIDS per se. They would get the AIDS or HIV, and then they would contract tuberculosis and malaria. And it was a tuberculosis and malaria that was just taking people out in Africa. And it was just tragic. I was going into facilities where 75, 80% of the people in the hospital were full-blown AIDS, and they would get tuberculosis in their joints and stuff. And I mean, it was just awful. Well, because of PEPFAR, we really reversed that course. And that was thanks in large part, to George Bush. Well, when Secretary Clinton became Secretary of State and Raj Shah was doing the work at USAID, they said, well, what's the next biggest reason why people, particularly on the continent of Africa, die? And the answer was, having babies. So you saw a huge groundswell of maternal and infant mortality focus. And we've been on the cutting edge of that, working hard on that issue. Where I think we're probably headed next is equal access to surgical procedure. So there's people in the world who are dying because they have an untreated hernia. I've got a friend in Chicago who does some work in Dominican Republic and Haiti. And she sent me a text message, WhatsApp message back a year or so ago. And she had done surgery on this gentleman in Dominican Republic. And he had a polyp that had grown down the back of his throat. And this thing was, it was as big as a, large dill pickle. I mean, this thing was huge and he had not been able to sleep laying down for years and was starting to suffocate to death. He would have died. It took her an hour and she had that thing out and the the guy kind of comes out of anesthesia, takes a big deep breath and just starts cheering. I mean, he could breathe again, right? So 30% of the people in the world who die right now are dying because they don't have access to surgery. So we're going to really ramp up and see if we can't turn that corner and do some cool stuff. I've got a doctor friend that I'm working with out in Nashville, Dr. Mike Christie, and they've developed something that they call the world knee. And we're going to town, working together in partnership with those guys too. The average prosthetic from, call Smith and Nephew, Exact Tech, whoever, Striker, is about three to $5,000 per knee, the prosthetic. And then you have to have some very expensive equipment to install that knee. These guys have figured out how to make a knee for about 300 bucks. And instead of 15 trays of instruments at 10 to $30,000 per tray, they have one tray and it's about 10 grand. And so the hospitals can launch into doing world knee without much investment in the way of tools and prosthetics and all that kind of stuff. So, I think there's going to be some really, really cool stuff. And then, of course, the telemedicine thing. I mean, we knew in the United States we could be doing telemedicine. I mean, how long have you and I known each other? We've talked about this on stage together.
0: Oh, yeah. Ten years. I mean, it's been a while now.
1: Right. But it wasn't until COVID that everybody said, oh, wow, we have to use telemedicine. Now. And in all honesty, it was how do you get paid for it? I mean, part of this was providers figuring out a different model. But if you can do this from call it Rainsley, Colorado to Denver. You can do this in Rwanda to Denver. You can do this from Australia to Angola. We can do some really, really cool stuff. And I think we're just starting to look at some of that, think about possibilities and what could be.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's huge opportunity there. and But it is going to take quite a few stakeholders. And one big stakeholder in all of that, of course, is infrastructure to get there globally, to be able to deploy those services around the world. But You're spot on, Douglas. There are huge opportunities on the technology and telemedicine front, which I'm really excited about. Well, thank you for sharing a bit what you're seeing out on the horizon, that new knee and the opportunity to bring the price way down. That sounds incredibly exciting. Do keep us posted on that, of course, as well. With that, though, Douglas, do let us know, how can we be helping you, right? We have an amazing community rallied around this podcast. Some of our nation's leaders tuning in on the regular. How can we be helping you? What's one problem, need, or question that you or Project Cure have that we can be helping you with?
1: Well, the three things that we always need to make this thing work is the products, the donations of the in-kind things. So these are the gloves, gauze, bandages, needle syringes, catheters, CAT scan machines, that kind of thing. And we're always looking for new sources and partners that we can come alongside of and say, I got tax benefits in my pocket. I'm happy to do whatever it is to make some sense on that volunteers is our second big thing we'll have between 20 and 30,000 volunteers and I, we're only running on a paid staff of 30 which is why our overhead rate is less than 3% but we're always looking for more volunteers and medical providers are fantastic because they can coach we'll probably have 70% of our volunteers in a given year that may not be medical but if we can teach them how to do this stuff like sort medical supplies you don't have to have an MD or an RN to do that. But it's really cool to have an RN or an MD that comes along and says, you're a banker. Let me show you a little bit out of my world. So the volunteers and then the funding is the third thing. So anything like that that people could do that would jump in and help. And when COVID is over, we're going to start traveling again. And so I would love to have some of the followers on your podcast get on a plane. Let's go. The people that you meet are off the rails, inspiring and the friendships that you make when you're over there, the culture, the food, the sound, just all of the stuff. But to come back and say, you know what? I taught another doctor a procedure. I taught a nurse how to take care of her babies. We went in with the facilities manager and we helped to restock their shelves in, in their storage rooms. And we made a difference. And I think that that's one thing that I would love to have more people get involved with
0: us. Well, there's plenty of rallied around the podcast that I know have passion around this, a lot of servant, servant leaders, if you will, getting out there, making a difference. So of course, in order for them to be able to help you out, Douglas, we need to be able to know where you are online. Where are some contact points, social media handles, websites, or otherwise, how can we find you? So
1: we're at projectcure.org, projectcure.org. I'm on LinkedIn at Dr. Douglas Jackson and people can find me at Douglas Jackson, no dot dash or anything, just Douglas Jackson at projecture.org. And we'd love to hear from you.
0: Well, easy enough. And we'll have those contact points in the episode notes. So in your podcast player, just simply scroll down. Those contact points will be in there. Click on through to get a hold of Douglas and his team. Of course, we'll also have a post for this episode over at passionatepioneers.com, our free global online community. There'll be an area as well where you can leave some comments, questions, feedback, ideas, or otherwise for Douglas and his team, again, over at PassionatePioneers.com. Well, Douglas, of course, and as always, I feel I could be here all day with you. Never a dull moment spending time with you, my friend. Great to have you on the podcast today. We do have one more segment for you. One of my favorites. It's a fill in the blank. I'm a passionate pioneer because...
1: I'm a passionate pioneer because I'm here to save lives, to leave a legacy, and to change the world.
0: I love it. And you're already doing that, my friend. You've been a big inspiration for me. When I came here back in 2008 to Denver, not knowing anyone, you're one of the first to welcome me with loving and open arms into this amazing community. You've been such an inspiration to me and so many others, not just here, but around the world, Douglas. So it's been an absolute honor to be able to bring you on to the podcast and being able to share the incredible work happening in the Project Cure camp. But for now, thank you so much for taking a pit stop to be with us today. I really appreciate it, Douglas. Thank you so much.
1: Honor, and pleasure is mine, my friend. Just let me know what you need. I'm here for you.